It's Information Overload Friday on this edition of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We're the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and lets you in on the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is Episode 235 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Friday, September 9th, 2022. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. And August 8th, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented and unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is a day that shall live in infamy. So this is really a different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. The United Kingdom and a lot of the world is in mourning with the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. I saw a rather remarkable interview with a pastor, a minister from Great Britain who revealed some things about Queen Elizabeth I think a lot of us had no idea about. It's on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox. Tucker said, Father Calvin Robinson is an Anglican deacon. He joins us to assess the passing of the regent of Great Britain. So Queen Elizabeth is the head of the church you serve, the Anglican Church. What does this mean? And here was the response. Absolutely. Uh, she was a thorough Christian. You know, the Queen wrote her own speeches every Christmas, and she always managed to get in there that the person who inspired her was Jesus Christ. And that, I think, is why she led a life of service and duty and obligation. A servant leader, if you will. And she put him at the heart of everything. And I think that's important for someone who's a global leader because they have to be accountable to someone. And for the Queen, that was Christ. And right now, as a nation and as a commonwealth, uh, we are grieving. And I think that we have to acknowledge that that's a good thing too because Jesus grieved at the graveside of Lazarus and it's something that helps us get past our emotions and it comforts us through this, this well, terrible time of loss really and truly and, and, and once we move past that we have to remember there is always hope and the hope of the resurrection through Christ and he told us that I am the resurrection and the life and all who believe in me even if they die will live now isn't that remarkable what this humble Anglican pastor was able to accomplish in his answer, somehow by the grace of God, in less than one minute. Now, Tucker Carlson is a consummate professional. He is rarely caught off guard. But he certainly seems to have been caught off guard here. He responded, 
Some of this is unknown to Americans, certainly to me. I didn't realize that Queen Elizabeth was seen as a Christian leader in Great Britain. Oh, absolutely. So before she was crowned, when she heard that her father had died and that she was going to become the queen, she said to us, pray for me that God may give me wisdom and strength to carry out the solemn promise I shall be making and that I may be faithfully serving him and you all the days of my life. And the beautiful thing is that that is exactly what she did. She served us, her people, her subjects, and she served Christ, her God, all of her life to the very last day. You know, just this week, she swore in the new Prime Minister, even though she was incredibly frail, incredibly old, and, and obviously ill. Duty was the most important thing to her, duty to us. Wow. I mean, have you heard this anywhere else? Did you have any idea? Uh, by the grace of God, my wife happened to have the Tucker Carlson show on, and I saw this, and I thought, I've got to get this interview. I've got to find it. I've got to share it. And it took a lot of searching, but I'm, I'm thankful I was able to. So Tucker comes back and says, do you imagine that her son will carry on these traditions, including her defense of Protestant Christianity? I have to believe that he will maintain her traditions. Her Majesty the Queen Elizabeth II was the defender of the faith. Now, Prince Charles, King Charles III, rather, has been on record before saying he will be defender of the faiths. And I hope that was a slip of the tongue, because we do need a Christian monarch to maintain Christian values in a Christian country. It's okay to have tolerance of people of other faiths and none. That's a British value. But Britain and England is a Christian country, first and foremost. And that is where we get our moral compass from. That's where we get our guidance from. That's where we get our values from. And that's where we get our family structure from. So it's important we maintain that throughout. I'm hoping and praying that he will do. Well, keep praying because um, he has given every indication that he has absolutely no intention of doing any such thing. That's me. Tucker Carlson didn't say that. Tucker just said, Father Calvin, thanks for joining us tonight. And uh, Father Calvin responded briefly. Appreciate it. God bless you. Long live the king. Appreciate it. God bless you. Long live the king. Because in, in a monarchy, that's what you said. Now, I just came across... What C.S. Lewis, the famous author, C.S. Lewis, who passed away the same day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated, November 22, 1963, what C.S. Lewis said upon the coronation of Elizabeth II in 1953, and by the way, if you've never read anything by C.S. Lewis, I highly recommend Mere Christianity. I highly recommend The Chronicles of Narnia. I highly recommend his science fiction trilogy, and this from someone who doesn't ordinarily like science fiction. I highly recommend his book, The Problem of Pain. Oh, yes. C.S. Lewis, in no small part, whom I read when I was very impressionable, 
in my high school and college years, in no small part because my father passed away of cancer when I was 16. C.S. Lewis helped me learn how to think. I'll just put it to you that way. C.S. Lewis, Clive Staple Lewis, helped me learn how to think. Anyway, here's what he said on the coronation of Elizabeth II, and I'm thankful that the curator of the, um, the website for J.R. Tolkien, who was a friend of C.S. Lewis's, I'm thankful that, uh, that he curated this for us. On the coronation of Elizabeth II, C.S. Lewis said, You know, over here people did not get that fairy tale feeling about the coronation. What impressed most who saw it was the fact that the queen herself appeared to be quite overwhelmed by the sacramental side of it. Hence, in the spectators, a feeling of, one hardly knows how to describe it, awe, pity, pathos, mystery. The pressing of that huge, heavy crown on that small, young head becomes a sort of symbol of the situation of humanity itself. Humanity called by God to be his vice-regent and high priest on earth, yet feeling so inadequate. As if he said, In my inexorable love I shall lay upon the dust that you are glories and dangers and responsibilities beyond your understanding. You see what I mean? He said, one has missed the whole point unless one feels that we have all been crowned and that coronation is somehow, if splendid, a tragic splendor. I told you, didn't I, that C.S. Lewis taught me how to think. A tragic splendor. It reminds me of the book, A Severe Mercy, a book written by a a friend of Lewis's about his uh, marriage and he and his wife's friendship with C.S. Lewis, their conversion to Christianity and subsequent tragedy, and includes uh, some previously unpublished letters by C.S. Lewis, A Severe Mercy. I would recommend that book to you also. Now, we do we do have a little bit of audio of Elizabeth from the early 50s as she was preparing to take the throne. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and to the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. But I shall not have strength to carry out this resolution alone unless you join in it with me, as I now invite you to do. I know that your support will be unfailingly given. God help me to make good my vow. And God bless all of you who are willing to share in it. Yeah. Yeah, it just got real up in here, y'all. It just got real. 
So, um, from time to time, there, there, there's a poignancy, a, a, a bittersweet. Um, tone to the relationship of Americans and and the British. It is sometimes said jokingly that we are two people divided by a common language because we use different words for different things from across the pond. And those, many of us who our descendants of that land have been away from it for so many generations that it seems quite foreign to us. So, so wasn't it uh, wasn't it a beautiful touch that shortly? after our nation was attacked on September 11, 2001. The official British band there at Buckingham Palace, right outside the Buckingham Palace, played one of the most stirring renditions of our national anthem that I've ever heard. And recall... Now, that the Star-Spangled Banner was written by Francis Scott Key as he witnessed a major naval battle in the War of 1812 between the United States of America and Great Britain. And yet, here they are. Here they are. years later, paying tribute to our country in our time of shock and grief after such a heinous attack on September 11, 2001. Uh, echo the sentiments of the Anglican deacon who was interviewed by an amazed Tucker Carlson 
one would hope that uh, the former Prince Charles, now Charles III, the King of England, would continue his mother's tradition of defending the Christian faith, but he just hasn't shown any interest whatsoever in that. But one would say, long live the king, but, and of course, I mean, long live the king. I I do say it, but I'm concerned. I'm concerned that that nation may be too far gone. Maybe too far gone. Have you heard of the um, the grooming scandal over there? Um, Rotherham grooming scandal, in which hundreds from the nineteen eighties to twenty thirteen. Hundreds, perhaps even thousands of children were sexually abused by what they call Asians. It was mostly Muslims. And the police, for decades, looked the other way because they didn't want to be called racists. Okay? And now... Now we have a... um, a brave member of parliament, one Lucy Allen, who wanted to speak to that. She's a a British Conservative Party member uh, of parliament, representing Telford. And so she announced she wanted to speak about the grooming gangs, which are still ongoing in the U.K. And almost everyone cleared out. She spoke to an almost empty parliament. I, I, don't, I don't know if you, you were aware that now the most popular name for a baby boy in the U.K. is Mohammed. I don't know that if you're aware that London has a Muslim mayor. I don't know if you're aware that the U.K. has no Second Amendment. It's a very violent place. Um, a lot of stabbings going on. And a lot of the sta- in a lot of the stabbing offenses, one finds that a lot of the victims happen to be black males, and a lot of the perpetrators happen to be what they call Asians, you know, Asians, Muslim, young Muslim males. So now they're, they're, they're trying to um, outlaw knives, you see. It w- wasn't enough. They, they outlawed the private ownership of guns. Now you... you they outlaw private ownership of knives, don't you see? They have drop boxes for knives. 
I don't know how you're supposed to cut your prime rib, but anyway, here is Lucy Allen trying to speak about the grooming gangs in the UK before an almost empty chamber in Parliament. Thank you, Madam Deputy Speaker, and it is a privilege to have secured the first adjournment debate uh, after the summer recess, and I'm very grateful for that opportunity. The independent inquiry into child sexual exploitation in Telford reported on its findings on the 12th of July uh, this year, at a time when Parliament was um, in some turmoil. So I'm particularly grateful to now be able to put on record the findings of that very important inquiry, and also the response from the authorities to those findings. This inquiry has relevance for every council. And that's all we have. But, you know, that's a country where if you you speak out too much, they'll throw you in jail. I don't know if you ever heard a guy named Tommy Robinson. Now, my Arkansas listeners might think, oh, yeah, we had a guy named Tommy Robinson in central Arkansas. He was a sheriff and then a member of Congress. No, I'm talking about the British Tommy Robinson. See, they they don't have a uh, First Amendment right to free speech in uh, Great Britain. So um, in response to the Telford child sexual exploitation Scandal Robinson held a January 2022 protest in Telford during which he screened his 73-minute documentary about Muslim grooming gangs titled The Rape of Britain Survivor Stories. And they, just, they, they keep throwing the guy in jail, you know. They keep throwing him in jail. Um, I, I think, unfortunately... Too many people in the leadership of the UK have lost their backbone. People do get arrested over there for saying things that upset other people. Uh, And it's a travesty. But I'm concerned that we're not too far behind them. I don't know if you saw the video of Steve Bannon the great podcaster Steve Bannon being perp-walked in cuffs in New York State. So if you're one of those people who's not concerned about what they do to uh, Alex Jones or Donald Trump or Steve Bannon or whoever, wait until they come for you. Wait until they come for you. I've shared it with you before. I've shared it with you before. The uh, the quote from the uh, Lutheran pastor from Germany, right? First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. I'm sure you've heard it. If not, 
If you haven't heard it, then you've come to the right place. Because I don't do what I do to sugarcoat anything. I try to let you know what's going on in the world, in our country. I try to bring out things that you may not be hearing anywhere else, you know. I just don't want you to say at some point, well, gee, Doc, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you warn us? Now, we're able to do the Doc Washburn Show five times a week by the grace of God, and part of God's grace to us is providing us with advertisers who make it possible for me to do this show instead of having to go do something else. And so we are very thankful for our advertisers, for our friends. If you try to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website to put you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options on it. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions and then create personalized payment options you have complete control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can figure out what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live, redriveryourway.com. You will be glad you did. All right, let me ask you this. Does your financial advisor take the time to listen and get to know you? Is your financial strategy personalized for you and your family? Will your financial advisor be there as your life and financial situations change? When you work with Jonathan Presswood, he focuses on what's important to you. He uses an established process to help you achieve your unique goals, whether that's preparing for retirement, making your money last in retirement, planning your estate or inheritance, preparing for the unexpected, or anything else. Jonathan Presswood can help. Now, what should you do if you leave a job and have a 401k or other retirement plan? Or if you're getting close to retirement or already in retirement? Call my friend, Jonathan Presswood, today. He'll help you create a personalized financial strategy backed by the advice, tools, and resources to help you reach your goals. And he'll partner together with you to help your strategy stay on track no matter what life throws at you. Listen, we can all dream of having a perfect retirement, but how many of us will actually experience it? 
No matter where you are today, Jonathan Presswood is offering a free retirement analysis to figure out where you'd like to be and what it will take to get you there, and there's no obligation. Contact Jonathan Presswood, a financial advisor with Edward Jones Investments, today at 501-303-4844. Again, that's 501-303-4844. Don't wait. Call Jonathan Presswood today at 501-303-4844. Now, if you're like me, you can't remember phone numbers, go to our website, docwashburnshow.com. Just click on the link to Jonathan Presswood at Edward Jones. Edward Jones, making sense of investing. Member SIPC. Thank you again to our friends Jonathan Presswood, financial advisor at Edward Jones, and Mitch Ward, proprietor at RedRiverYourWay.com. We really appreciate you guys. Okay, now before I get to the latest insanities going on with the legal fight over the documents the feds stole, from former President Trump and the obtuseness, the willful blindness of one former Attorney General, William Barr. Let me ask you, did you know that Donald Trump paid his respects upon the death of Queen Elizabeth? Yes, indeed. As a matter of fact, Donald Trump did a call-in. Nigel Farage, the guy who is in charge of the Brexit party in the U.K., apparently has a regular show on GB News. GB, of course, standing for Great Britain. And Donald Trump did a call-in. On Nigel Farage's show, you may have seen him on on American television. He's a very popular Brit with uh, with Americans. Uh, Donald Trump did did a call in on Nigel Farage's show to uh, to express his admiration and and to pay his respects upon the uh, the passing of Queen Elizabeth II at ninety six years old. It went like this. It's said all over the world, she was a woman that was just extraordinary, Nigel, just an extraordinary woman, a great woman, who could be greater than what she's done, and she did it so long so well, and never made mistakes, if you think about it, right? Just never made mistakes. She was an incredible person, and it's a very sad day. No, she really was, and I know that uh, your mother, um, who of course you know came from the Western Isles in Scotland, um, and you told me once that I mean she was a great fan of the Queen, wasn't she? She was. My mother came from Stornoway, and she uh, loved anything to do with the Queen. She would watch if they had a ceremony, even the smallest of ceremonies. When uh, the Queen was on, my mother would be there watching. Uh, she was a tremendous fan. She was a tremendous fan indeed. So you kind of grew up with the Queen in a sense, although growing up in America, in that household, you grew up uh, you know, with the Queen and knowing who the Queen was, absolutely. What was it like? I mean, there you were, President of America, coming to Buckingham Palace, meeting the Queen, having tea with the Queen, spending time with her. I mean, what did that mean to you? Well, we were going to spend just a short period of time, and we just got along really well, and we spent a lot more time than people thought, and uh, it was uh, it was really quite something. We just 
we just got along very well. We had a good chemistry. And then, as you remember, that evening, there was a big celebration. And I sat next to the queen, and we just talked all night long. She was uh, incredible. She was incredible to speak to and so sharp. Her mind was so sharp. And uh, just to be with her was uh, something very special. All right. Our great president pays tribute to the great queen of England. Elizabeth II, who set an all-time record. She was uh, the longest ruling monarch in the history of the country. And monarchs, that area, it's tradition that goes back over 11 centuries, over 1,100 years. Her son Charles becomes the oldest person ever to assume the British throne at age 73. That record was previously held by William IV at age 64. So, the concern, though, is that eventually this this long tradition of 11 centuries will be upended. When you get to the point because they just have massive, massive, massive immigration from people who have no respect for British traditions or a Western worldview, way of life. They want Sharia law. And if they get to the point where there are enough of them, I mean, they already have Sharia courts. Uh, the concern I would have for that great nation is that they are uh, circling the drain when it comes to matters of freedom and liberty. I would not be surprised if uh, the wearing of burqas becomes mandatory in the U.K. in my lifetime because I can see where it's going. I can see where it's going. And I do not do this program to be politically correct, to smooth over ruffle feathers, to, uh, you know, to play softball. That's not what this is about. Okay, William Barr. William Barr was on the story with Martha McCallum on Fox News. And he is being savaged and rightly so, by people like a recent guest of mine, Mike Davis, former law clerk for Justice Gorsuch, former chief counsel for judicial nominations for the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee under Senator Grassley. I, I, I'll let you know what Mike Davis, a few other people are saying about William Barr here. Margot Cleveland, also over the Federalist. Because um, he is, uh, I don't know, I guess he's trying to sell a book, but he is sullying his reputation. And I've never thought that he lacked for intelligence, but oh my goodness. Talk about a lack of self-awareness about what you are doing 
to your reputation. And here William Barr tries to destroy his reputation among people who actually respect the law and the Constitution in less than a minute and a half on Fox News. The opinion, I think, was wrong, and I think the government should appeal it. Now, the opinion, he's talking about the opinion from the judge, okay? The judge who agreed with the Trump team asking for a special master and outside third party to kind of oversee what the feds are doing with the documents and stuff they took, because they took a lot of stuff not under the subpoena. They took 40 years' worth of Trump's private medical records. They took tax records. You see where I'm going with this? Private emails that had nothing to do with anything? Um, press clippings, magazine covers, clothing? And William Barr doesn't think there should be an outside third party to look over the shoulder of the DOJ and the FBI. Now, why might that be? All right, let's go here. The opinion, I think, was wrong, and I think the government should appeal it. Uh, It's deeply flawed in a number of ways. I don't think the appointment of a special uh, master is going to hold up, but even if it does, I don't see it fundamentally changing the trajectory. In other words, I don't think it changes the ballgame so much as maybe we'll have a rain uh, rain delay for a couple of innings. But I think that the fundamental dynamics of the case are set, which is the government has very strong evidence of what it really needs to determine whether charges are appropriate, which is government documents were taken, classified information was taken and not handled appropriately. And uh, they are looking into, and there's some evidence to suggest, that they were deceived. And, And none of that really relates to the content of documents. It relates to what the fact that there were documents there and the fact that they were classified and the fact that they were subpoenaed and never delivered, but they don't have to show the content, you know, the specific advice given in a memo, for example, in order to prevail in this case. So I think um, it's not really going to change the decision. Do you think the special master will be overturned on appeal by the DOJ? I think if DOJ appeals, eventually it will be overturned. How long will that take? Well, that's why it could be delayed. I hope they expedite it, but it could, it could, could take several months to get that straightened out. What a schlemiel. What a schlemiel. What a schmageggy. Oy vey. I was in high school and college, lived across the street from some people who use those words. and That's where I learned them. Um, yeah, this guy. This guy. All right, let me share with you. Let me share with you. The great Margot Cleveland. Short article over the Federalist.com entitled Has the Trump Raid Made Bill Barr Forget All About Deep State Deceit? Subtitle Barr's opinion rests on the assumed veracity of leaks, spin, and misleading narratives. She says Bill Barr is wrong about the Mar-a-Lago raid for the same reason Barr's critics were wrong about his decision to investigate the Russia collusion hoax. 
Barr's opinion now and those of his adversaries when he served as Trump's attorney general both rest on the assumed veracity of leaks, spin, and misleading narratives. The facts have since vindicated Barr's decision to investigate the investigators who targeted Trump, and until the details surrounding the latest attack on Trump are proven, nothing said by the Biden administration or its partners in the press should be accepted as true. On Friday, and again on Tuesday, Barr appeared on Fox News to discuss the Mar-a-Lago raid and the Department of Justice's investigation into former President Donald Trump. During both appearances, Barr repeated the storylines pushed by the D.C. media cartel since news first broke that the FBI had raided Trump's Florida home. In his appearance on America Reports last Friday, Barr told hosts Sandra Smith and John Roberts he personally thought that for the DOJ to take things to the current point, they probably have pretty good evidence. Remember? Remember when I played you that soundbite? Barr continued, Now let me just say I think the driver on this from the beginning was loads of classified information sitting in Mar-a-Lago. People say this was also unprecedented, but it's also unprecedented for a president to take all this classified information and put it in a country club, okay? How long is the government going to try to get that? They jawboned for a year. They were deceived on the voluntary actions taken. They then went and got a subpoena. They were deceived on that, they feel, and the facts are starting to show they were being jerked around. And so how long do they wait? So Margot Cleveland here at the Federalist says, while William Barr caveated his comments as speculation and noted that until we see the evidence, it's hard to say, Barr's conclusions flow from the assumption that the details made public by the DOJ and the leaks to the media represent the truth and the whole truth. But those very same leaks should make Barr leery. Special counsel John Durham's team is leak-free. Similarly, the other men Barr trusted to handle the sensitive investigations into the Clinton Foundation, the inappropriate prosecution of Michael Flynn, and the evidence of the Biden family corruption coming from Ukraine ensure their teams kept the investigations confidential. Conversely, the previous Get Trump plots all relied on media leaks to push falsehoods about the investigations, whether it was Crossfire Hurricane, Special Counsel Robert Mueller's investigation, or the impeachment efforts. The evidence also indicates that the driver of the investigation was not loads of classified information sitting in Mar-a-Lago, as Barr put it, but Trump. Trump was the man the government just needed to find a crime. Margot Cleveland says, as I detailed soon after the raid, the trail to Mar-a-Lago began at the White House long before the discovery of classified material and boxes returned to the National Archives. The now-retired head of the National Archives and Records Administration, otherwise known as NARA, David Ferriero, 
recalled, quote, watching the Trumps leave the White House and getting off in the helicopter that day and someone carrying a white banker box and saying to myself, what the hell's in that box, unquote. His words, not mine. According to Ferriero, quote, That began a whole process of trying to determine whether any records had not been turned over to the archives, unquote. Nera then made a criminal referral to the DOJ, something they would never have done for a Democrat president, who all did the same thing, based not merely on the presence of classified materials, but also suggesting Trump violated 18 U.S. Code 2071, because the former president returned a document that he had previously torn up. Nera's interactions with Trump contrast sharply with its handling of former President Barack Obama's presidential documents and how it handled Hillary Clinton's violations of federal law, as I've detailed extensively here, and she links to an article that she wrote less than a month ago called from bureaucrat hack to grand jury witch hunt, the DOJ's Trump raid smells like Spygate. So this exposes what NARA is doing, the referral, the criminal referral on Trump as a political hit. Not only has William Barr accepted the false narrative that the driver of the investigation was loads of classified information sitting in Mar-a-Lago, but during both yesterday And last Friday's interviews, the former attorney general repeated several of the storylines seeded by the leakers. While Barr made clear that the outcome of any charging decision depended on what the evidence showed and how clear it was, he has clearly internalized the leakers' version of events. At one point... Barr noted, quote, if they clearly have the president moving stuff around and hiding stuff in his desk and telling people to, to dissemble, unquote, the DOJ is more likely to charge the former president. Again, quoting, they were deceived on the voluntary actions taken. They then went and got a subpoena. They were deceived on that, they feel, unquote. Then yesterday, Barr told Fox News's Martha McCallum that there is evidence to suggest they were deceived. The evidence, though, consists of select documents released by the DOJ, including heavily redacted documents and media leaks. In other words, it's precisely what convinced half the country that Trump had colluded with Russia. While it's possible that Trump deceived the DOJ or that he defied the grand jury subpoena, the entire Mar-a-Lago episode tracks the Russia collusion hoax playbook too closely to give credence to any of the accusations levied against the former president, and Barr is wrong to trust them. Again, that is Margot Cleveland, senior legal correspondent at The Federalist. And I think that uh, what she's saying here is quite instructive. Now, having said that, of course, as journalists do, she linked to the article 
on Twitter. And the great Harmeet Dillon, a great attorney who's represented a lot of good people, responded, we have heard more from Bill Barr in the last week as he humps his book than we did during the COVID civil rights crisis or the multi-state coordinated election irregularities of 2020 or regarding Biden family corruption for that matter. What a disappointment. One respondent says, Ruby Ridge, that anyone ever thought something good was going to come out of him baffles me because he was attorney general during the Ruby Ridge standoff scandal. Then the great Mike Davis says Bill Barr is bitter at President Trump missing the limelight and peddling his book. He's happily letting himself get used by anti-Trump forces in both parties, and he knows he's 100% wrong as a matter of law. Any president has the absolute constitutional power as commander-in-chief to declassify anything he wants. The Supreme Court confirmed that in Department of the Navy versus Egan in 1988. Mike Davis continues, and, he, and this is what he was saying on my show recently, right? If you missed it, go back and check it out. Any president has the absolute statutory power to take personal copies, classified or non-classified, when he leaves office. An Obama judge confirmed that in 2012 when former President Clinton had eight years of highly classified recordings of his presidency in his sock drawer. Barr was the attorney general twice and the deputy AG. He ran the Office of Legal Counsel. He knows the law. He has long promoted any president's executive power. He is playing willfully ignorant here because he has a big ego and he wants to sell his book. This is a political witch hunt by Biden to get back Trump's declassified crossfire hurricane records because they are so damaging to Obama, to Biden, to Hillary, to the FBI, and to the intel community on the Russian collusion hoax with the added benefit of election interference in November. You hate to see Barr do something like this. Know what I'm saying, Holmes? You hate to see it. But thank God for people like Mike Davis, who let us know. Thank God for people like Harmeet Dillon, for people like Margot Cleveland, who let us know that we can't just take this guy's word for stuff. You know? Now, did you realize that one of MSNBC's favorite former conservatives called for President Trump to be assassinated live on TV? Yep, sure did. And I'll bet you the FBI has not banged down his door yet. I wonder why. Different strokes for different folks, right? No, 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 seriously. 
I'll play you. I'll play you the audio. No, I, I don't make claims I can't back up. I'll play you the audio here momentarily. In the first place, though, thank you again for our advertisers for making it possible for us to do what we do here. Hey, I'd like to help you with some health issues. You have migraines, neck pain, back pain, vertigo, acid reflux, eczema, problems with your blood sugar, maybe even hay fever. Okay, let's do a little test. Look in the mirror. Does one eye look bigger than the other? Are your eyes off balance? Are your shoulders off balance? Look at a picture of yourself. Are you tilting your head to the left or the right instead of sitting up or standing up straight? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, you probably need to get your atlas adjusted. That's how I got rid of my migraines, neck pain, and hay fever. Let me explain to you how it works because it's the best kept secret in American healthcare. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain, restricting your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. It can affect your respiratory system, reproductive system, circulatory system, even digestive system. And yes, it can cause migraines, neck pain, back pain, acid reflux, Eczema, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar? Do yourself a favor. If you're in Arkansas, call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted, because you probably do. If you're outside central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, and click on Find a Doctor Near You. And I sure hope you can. Thank you once again to Dr. J.R. Crabtree and his wife, Dr. Tanya Crabtree, at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, TurnMyPowerOn.com, our advertisers, our doctors, and our friends. I've been uh, letting people know how much they've helped me and my wife. I first started doing announcements for them when I was still on the radio um, over eight years ago. And they've helped me so much, they've helped my wife so much, and they've helped so many people that we know. If you have some health issues, first consultation's free. What do you got to lose? I've met people who have said, you know, I put this off for so long, and, and, and I feel so much better now. And I look back, and I'm like, why did I put this off for so long? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's a mystery wrapped in a puzzle, and shrouded in an enigma. Anyway, so um, there's a guy named Chris Hayes over on MSNBC. He has a show called All In. There's a guy named Rick Wilson, who used to be kind of a rhino type until Trump broke him and he went over to the dark side, totally over to the Democrats. And uh, Rick Wilson called for... uh, a former president to be shot Tuesday night on MSNBC. I I wonder why the FBI hasn't taken him into custody yet. Here it is. And the donor class can't just sit back on the sidelines and say, oh, well, don't worry, this will all work itself out. They're still going to have to go out and put a bullet in Donald Trump, and that's a fact. Didn't sound metaphorical to me, did it to you? It did not sound metaphorical to me. Did it to you? 
I'm telling you, you know as well as I do, if somebody said the same exact words about a current or former Democrat president, he would be in federal prison right now. You know that's true. You know that's true. Okay, so um, I got a new one for you. Documents that are out there now, the FBI pressured Americans to sign away their gun rights without a court hearing. Joy Pullman over the Federalist.com amid a national crisis of confidence in the Federal Bureau of Investigation following years of revelations, the agency has repeatedly abused its powers to rig elections for Democrats. Newly public documents display yet another FBI abuse of power. Documents obtained by Daily Caller reporter Gabe Kaminsky indicate the FBI has secretly pressured an unknown number of Americans to sign away their constitutional right to bear arms without being convicted of any crime in a regular court of law, another constitutional right. The existence of a form that FBI employees have reportedly pressured Americans to sign after appearing at their doors was uncovered after a legal battle to get the FBI to answer an open records request from Gun Owners of America. Robert Olson, legal counsel for Gun Owners of America, told the Daily Caller News Foundation the people targeted with these forms are not otherwise prohibited persons and have not committed any actual crime with which they can be charged. The FBI claims it discontinued the use of the form back in 2019, but the obtained records show the FBI used the form to deprive American citizens of their natural rights outside the constitutional mechanism of a proper trial in U.S. courts at least 15 times. Oh, I bet it's a lot more than that. Kaminsky at the Daily Caller writes, the FBI declined to identify any statutory justification for the forms. Oh, really? I'm shocked. Shocked, I tell you. Several of those the FBI pressured into signing the form were investigated after being reported as making threats of violence on social media. Now, many leftists consider disagreeing with their views to constitute violence. You know, speech means violence, right? And that is the rationale big tech companies that control what Americans can see online use to ban those who say men can't become women, including Federalist Senior Editor John Daniel Davidson. In the United Kingdom, people have been visited by police for disagreeing with leftist gender ideology. And in Finland, a member of parliament has been prosecuted in court for quoting the Bible on homosexuality. The Biden administration has also defined many common political views of conservatives as domestic terrorist threats. Last week, Joe Biden associated the 74 million Americans who voted for his opponent in 2020 with domestic extremists, or in other words, a terrorist threat. 
a 2021 Department of Homeland Security memo gave as examples of domestic violent extremism views shared by tens of millions of Americans, including supporting only legal immigration, raising concerns about mass mail-in balloting, and objecting to COVID lockdowns. Half of independent voters and 68% of Republican voters think the FBI and Department of Justice are corrupt, according to a poll out two weeks ago. FBI whistleblowers recently told Congress the Biden administration is demanding they reclassify cases as domestic extremism to pad their numbers and inflate this threat. This is only one of a cascade of recent public disclosures demonstrating the federal law enforcement agency's mass corruption. I've said it before. I'll say it again. They need to be dismantled. Totally dismantled. Now, how long has it been since we have brought to you a fake hate crime, a hate crime hoax here on the Doc Washburn Show? Well, we got a new one. Legal Insurrection has a story on it. Thefederalist.com has a story on it. We'll grab the one from The Federalist. Jordan Boyd, story entitled, How Corporate Media sold the BYU race narrative with zero corroborating evidence. Subtitle? The real question here is not whether Richardson was telling the truth, but why it took so long for anyone to investigate or corroborate her claims before blasting them to the world. Jordan Boyd has the article at The Federalist. She said, USA Today published a column on Wednesday claiming it is a right-wing conspiracy, to think a Duke volleyball player lied about being racially taunted by Brigham Young University fans at her recent match in Provo, Utah. The USA Today author wrote, say, just for argument's sake, that Rachel Richardson made up this story. You have to believe that she did, knowing she was putting not just her volleyball future at risk, but her college future as a student at Duke. She would be forever tarnished as a liar, one of the worst liars. You have to believe she then lied to her dad, which is possible. Kids lie to their parents, but about this? But also, you'd have to believe she would then let her father go on CNN and repeat that lie. Okay, that's what the author of the USA Today article said. Thus, despite video evidence confirming that he engaged in no threatening or inappropriate behavior, a Utah Valley University student is banned from attending BYU sporting events for life after Duke sophomore volleyball player Rachel Richardson and her teammates accused him of hurling racial slurs at her during their match on August 26th. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold everything. Because I was under the impression that no teammates even corroborated what she said. Right? Now, this is um, this is concerning. Maybe maybe I should double check. 
um, the article over at legal, legalinsurrection.com. See, that's the wonderful thing about your history, you know. You can just check your history, but I think it'd be easier to just open up legalinsurrection.com and type in volleyball in the search engine on the website. And just, just do you know how to look for a, a, a word in an article? You just hit Control-F, and it lets you search the article for a particular word. Of course, it doesn't help if you hit the... Uh, the wrong key. So I'm going to look for the word teammates over here. No, nope, doesn't have the word teammates. Anyway, let me go back to it. Let me go back to what the uh, what the Federalist article is saying about this uh, this hate crime hoax. So. Thus, despite video evidence confirming that he engaged in no threatening or inappropriate behavior, a Utah Valley University student is banned from attending BYU sporting events for life after Duke sophomore volleyball player Rachel Richardson and her teammates accused him of hurling racial slurs at her during their match on August 26th. It's hard to determine what Richardson believed she heard in a sporting center packed with a noisy, record-setting crowd, but it's certainly not far-fetched to think CNN or any other corporate media outlet would let someone wielding a narrative the press is eager to amplify go on air without proper vetting. After all, it was the corporate media that perpetuated Spygate, Jesse Smollett's orchestrated hate crime hoax, and the Border Patrol whipping lies. Could Rachel Richardson have heard negative remarks while on the court? Maybe. Is there evidence to suggest that BYU fans launched racial slurs at her, quote, throughout the entirety of the match, unquote, as she, the media, and blue check marks on Twitter suggested? Blue check marks are like famous people. Absolutely not. There's no evidence. On the contrary, there's strong evidence to suggest that Richardson and Duke's hasty blame game and BYU's scramble to throw off accusations of harboring racism led to the targeting of an innocent man. The Duke-BYU controversy started like any viral incident when Richardson's godmother, Lisa Pamplin, a candidate for county criminal court judge in Texas, tweeted from her now-private Twitter account. She said, My goddaughter is the only black starter for Duke's volleyball team. While playing yesterday, she was called a racial slur, you know, the N-word. Every time she served, she was threatened by a white male that told her to watch her back going to the team bus. A police officer had to be put by their bench. Now, Pamplin did not attend the game in question, but that didn't matter. By the time Rachel Richardson released her own statement on Twitter, alleging that both officials and BYU coaching staff were made aware of the incident during the game but failed to take the necessary steps, failed to adequately address the situation after the game, the anger 
for BYU and its fans was already ignited. These anecdotes of the alleged incident severely lacked evidence and corroboration, yet the corporate media and politicians who see virtue signaling as an asset latched onto Richardson and her family's claims that more than one BYU fan taunted her using the N-word. Shortly after the allegations surfaced, BYU released a statement announcing that after the game, a fan singled out by the Duke sideline for hurling racist taunts at Richardson was banned from all BYU athletic venues for life. Around that time, every corporate media outlet from NPR to MSNBC to CNN to the Washington Post and more published stories definitively stating that at least one BYU fan hurled racist slurs at Richardson during the volleyball match and was subsequently banned for it. Richardson had claimed in her tweet that she was targeted and racially heckled throughout the entirety of the match. But the media parroted Pamplin's narrative of every time she rotated to serve. Some outlets, such as Axios, which is kind of like the AP or Reuters, went so far as to hint that BYU's recent public rejection of the world's diversity, equity, and inclusion agenda somehow played a role in the incident. There was no use of the words allegedly or reportedly in the press's coverage of the controversy either. Instead, they took Richardson, her family, and Duke University at their word. Because of this, voicemail threats and pressure for failing to do something to combat racism mounted against BYU. Even South Carolina women's basketball coach Dawn Staley decided to cancel her team's upcoming basketball games against BYU. That pressure is why BYU athletic director Tom Holmo gave a written and verbal thrashing to all of the fans at the next Cougar volleyball match to address the egregious and hurtful slurs launched against Richardson. He tweeted after addressing fans in person, Cougar Nation, we've got to be better, and we've got to have the courage to take care of each other and our guests at our BYU sporting events. Before long, everyone in Utah, including Governor Spencer Cox, who has a history of defending racism against white kids, and left-wing Senate candidate Evan McMullen was cussing out BYU fans and demanding the society do more to prevent incidents like this one. Even LeBron James weighed in. I'm shocked. I'm shocked, I tell you. The leftist NBA star LeBron James, who calls himself King James on Twitter, tweeted with a handful of emojis, quote, Lisa Pamplin, you tell your goddaughter to stand tall, be proud, and continue to be black. We're a brotherhood and sisterhood. We have her back. This is not sports. Hashtag strive for greatness. Hashtag more than a volleyball player. Time out. It wasn't until days later when a conservative student newspaper on campus published an exclusive, noting the people sitting in the student section 
where the reported racist incident occurred heard no racial slurs or taunting, that anyone thought to second-guess the story that was fed into the news cycle for days. Not only did the Cougar Chronicle report that it was unable to find a source in the student section that can corroborate Richardson's claim of racial slurs being yelled at her, but it also quoted a verified source in the BYU Athletic Department who said Richardson's insistence that BYU did nothing to address her concerns during the game were bogus. The anonymous source explained Ms. Richardson complained of hearing a racial slur during the second set, but did not point anyone out. Officials discussed briefly and stationed policemen there. There were no more complaints until after the match. The source also claimed that BYU banned an innocent man to appease the mob and make their PR mess go away. But wait, there's more from the Cougar Chronicle at BYU. While I don't know if Miss Richardson genuinely misheard something or intentionally made up this story, it certainly does not constitute the criticism BYU has gotten. There is zero evidence of a slur being said. Not a single witness besides Ms. Richardson has come forth. Okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. That makes it look like her teammates are not backing her up on this. Not a single cell phone video or BYU TV's several camera angles caught a single thing. How unlikely when this person supposedly said a slur during every single serve. That same day, the Salt Lake City Tribune reported that an investigation by the BYU campus police yielded nothing but strong video evidence that the fan named by the Duke sideline for heckling black players such as Richardson was not shouting anything while the Duke player was serving. As a matter of fact, the police officer who reviewed footage featuring the band fans said, there was nothing seen on the game film that led me to believe that the man was the person who was making comments to the player who complained about being called the N-word and that the non-BYU student wasn't even present during some of Richardson's serves. As the Salt Lake City Tribune reported, the BYU Athletic Department wanted to ban the man anyway. This caving was likely a move to get Duke, Richardson, her family, and the press off of their backs. Cowards. Of course, the media outlets who smear this fan as a racist have yet to retract or apologize for their false claims about BYU and its fans. Some outlets are still hosting segments featuring Richardson, like ESPN, her family members, and her account of the controversy. The real question here is not whether Richardson was telling the truth, but why it took so long for anyone to investigate or corroborate her claims before blasting them to the world. Any of the corporate media outlets that took time to report this story could have easily tried to verify Richardson's claims. They have the resources, they have the time, and they have the staff to do that legwork, such as asking the campus police. 
about the results of the investigation or asking fans in the record-setting crowd if they heard anything inappropriate. But once again, the media failed to do the most basic aspects of their job because to them, pushing an agenda is more important than finding and reporting facts. That's Jordan Boyd over The Federalist. The article is entitled, How Corporate Media Sold the BYU Race Narrative with Zero Corroborating Evidence. Man, oh man, oh man. I got to tell you, I've seen it before, and I'll see it again. Uh, You know, I've seen it before, I'll see it again. I've said it before, I'll say it again. The supply and demand problem when it comes to hate crimes. All right? There's a supply and demand problem when it comes to hate crimes. There's a lot more demand than there is supply. So sometimes folk, I think, feel like uh, they got to make things up. Right? They just got to make things up. And so they do. And so they do. All right. Now, having said that, seems like this would probably be just as good a time as any to say, hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Red River Your Way, big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online and have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental United States of America. All right, so this is a two-parter. Christiane Amanpour. She is chief international anchor over at CNN and uh, not a nice person. Not a big fan of Israel, but uh, big fan of the, quote, Palestinians, unquote. And so she interviewed William Samoy Ruto, Ph.D., the president-elect of the Republic of Kenya. And in her tweet, she says, gay sex is illegal in Kenya and president-elect Ruto previously said, we have no room for gays. She says, he tells me we respect everybody, but adds this is not a big issue for the people of Kenya. And President Kenyatta was spot on to say homosexuality is not agreeable. So, I guess the same network that doesn't want to get involved with China 
doesn't want to meddle with the way they treat the Uyghurs or forced abortions or, you know, removing organs, you know, killing prisoners by removing organs for transplant. They, they, they don't mind getting involved in the internal politics of Kenya. They're not going to mess with China. Not going to mess with Iran, but Kenya is fair game. So here we go. Christiana Amapur and the president-elect of Kenya, and then the tweet of the day will be the response to all of this. Here goes nothing. I want to talk to you about a specific, you know, human rights situation in parts of Africa and including in your own country. You yourself gained worldwide attention a few years ago when you said there was, quote, no room for homosexuality in Kenyan society. I want to know whether you still stand by that. We have um, Kenyan law, we have Kenyan constitution, we have our tradition, we have our customs. We will continue to respect other people's customs as they respect our customs and our tradition. I am very clear, I am very clear that we respect everybody and what they believe in, but we also have what we believe in and we expect to be respected for what we believe in. So before I ask you to flesh that out and what exactly does it mean, I want to play you what President Kenyatta said to me about this issue. I will not engage in a subject that is of no, it's, uh, it, it is not of any major importance to the people and the Republic of Kenya. This is not an issue, as you would want to put it, of um, human rights or this this is an issue of society, of our own base as a culture, as a people, regardless of which community you come from. This is not acceptable. This is not agreeable. So he's basically saying homosexuality is not agreeable. You've just said that you're kind of trying to thread the needle, that the law says one thing, but you respect everybody's rights. Will a Ruto administration crack down, like many other leaders in Africa, on the homosexual LGBTQ community? Or will you allow them their human rights and their civil rights? I think on that subject, President Kenyatta was spot on. We do not want to create a mountain out of a molehill. This is not... A, a big issue for the people of Kenya. When the people, of, when it becomes a big issue for the people of Kenya, the people of Kenya will make a choice. As it is now, we are grappling with five million young people who do not have jobs, four million people who are hungry, and that is my concern. That is the focus of the people of Kenya at the moment. When the issue you have discussed about homosexuality and the rights of LGBT will come, the people of Kenya will make a choice, and we will respect the choice of the people of Kenya. For now, Christian Amanpo, let us focus on the real issues that affect our people. As you know, Mr. President, with respect, these are real issues that affect so many people around the world. But we will hold you to what you said, and we'll come back to you um, if the if the situation requires it, which no problem. probably it will. What do you think about a so-called journalist like that? 
I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to open up uh, the, the, the new guy in charge of CNN is trying to open up CNN to. Uh, uh, to folks who aren't necessarily uh, liberal. Anyway. Anyway. Reminds me of the uh, the old Chinese saying, when there's food on the table, there are many problems. When there's no food on the table, there's only one problem. And he said, we have 4 million people in our country that are hungry. That's kind of what's important to us right now. 5 million young people don't have jobs. That's kind of what's important to us right now. Anyway, the tweet of the day is the great Darren J. Beatty from over at Revolver News, who responds to all this foolishness saying, this is why China is rightfully winning in Africa. China acts in a purely transactional way. Whereas, on the other hand, the globalist American empire will shove sodomy, transgenderism, and so-called female rights down the throats of any African nation dumb enough to do a deal with them. That's it. This is why China is eating our lunch and is is gaining so many footholds in so many African countries. Okay, update on Memphis. We talked about the, uh, the crime spree in Memphis on our last edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Let's see, what do we have here? Um, Since then, Memphis police looking for men seen in video vowing to kill white people. Day after deadly rampage was streamed on Facebook Live. The man who live streamed himself carrying out a mass shooting spree in Memphis yesterday, allegedly killing four and injuring three smiled as he was arrested and booked into jail. Ezekiel Kelly has a violent criminal history, but was given an early release from prison this year. Police arrested a suspect in the kidnapping case of Memphis teacher Eliza Fletcher, kidnapping and murder. 38-year-old Cleotha Abston, charged with especially aggravated kidnapping and tampering with evidence. Memphis police announced early Sunday. I think since then the murder charge has been added, right? Uh, Memphis kidnapping suspect arrested after allegedly abducting mom and baby from Target. That was on Wednesday morning. And now, sadly, we have the, uh, the story of two Cobb County, Georgia sheriff's deputies trying to serve a warrant and being ambushed and murdered. And so, um, as I mentioned to you, Memphis has one of those uh, George Soros prosecutors, soft on crime, is going to do bail reform here in February. Things will get worse in Memphis. Um, yeah, my wife and I might just stop driving through there on our way to see family in Florida. Might have to go the other way. I mean, we're definitely not stopping in Memphis anymore. No, definitely not stopping. Now, I mentioned to you earlier the Attorney General of the State of New York ordered Steve Bannon 
Perp walked in front of a prostrate media. That, those are the words of the great Jack Posobiec over at Human Events, who says Ameri- America is now a purge country. And the great uh, talk show host out of Houston, Jesse Kelly, said, this doesn't stop until red areas and red district attorneys start arresting Democrats on television. There is no appeal to so-called norms, so-called principles that will make this stop. Make them afraid of it happening to them, or this gets much worse from here. Today it's Bannon, tomorrow it's you. And he's right. And he's right. Now, I want to go back to some responses to the sad passing of Queen Elizabeth. A woman named Uja Anya, who is a critical race theorist at Carnegie Mellon University. I wonder how much they pay her. I wonder if we know how much they pay her. If we can find that out, I'll check. But anyway, she went on Twitter, and she later deleted the tweet. She went on Twitter and said, I heard the chief monarch of a thieving, raping, genocidal empire is finally dying May her pain be excruciating. She's a critical race theorist at Carnegie Mellon University. Christopher Rufo, the guy who who told us about critical race theory in the first place, said that Uja Anya believes that white women consistently vote to protect white supremacy and the white mothers of biracial children have mandingo fantasies of black men and regularly call their own children the n-word so she has mental issues and yet she's getting paid a lot of money and yes this woman helps design school curricula and dei programs do you know what dei is diversity Equity and inclusion. It's, you know, the perpetration of racism. Christopher Rufo says, we have created an entire bureaucratic infrastructure that elevates the most mediocre, hateful, and psychologically disturbed people in our society to positions of influence over the education of millions of American children. Not a recipe for success. All right, not a recipe for success. Let me go back to the Biden administration appealing the appointment of the special master to oversee a lot of documents they stole from Trump, including many documents not covered by the subpoena. The great Sean Davis of the Federal said, Biden's corrupt DOJ really, really, really doesn't want any oversight whatsoever of the insane FBI raid it launched against a former president. What? What are they hiding? What are they hiding? 
And let me give you a little bit more from Mike Davis. Andrew Weissman, who was thought of as Robert Mueller's bulldog on the almost two-year-long Russia collusion hoax investigation. Andrew Weissman, who I don't know why he's not in jail after what he did to Enron and Arthur Anderson. Anyway, he said, DOJ used the big crayons to spell out for Judge Cannon, Judge Eileen Cannon, the one who said they're going to be a special master, why Trump has no right to review of classified documents. He says Trump does not own government classified records, has no right to have government records returned, and documents don't contain attorney-client privilege info between Trump and attorneys. Well, that's not true, man. But Weissman lies, you know, Weissman lies. Anyway, Mike Davis responds, number one, Supreme Court used a big crayon in 1988 to make clear the president as commander-in-chief has the absolute constitutional power to declassify anything he wants. Number two, Obama-appointed judge used a big crayon in 2012 to make clear he can take records, even classified records, when he leaves. Number three, every president going back to Washington gets constitutional executive privilege to protect his confidential communications with aides. Number four, why is the Biden Justice Department so terrified about an independent special master checking their homework? What do they have to hide. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I got a. I have a comment here. Most of the people who listen to Doc Washburn's show listen at their leisure to the podcast after the fact, but some folks listen to the live stream. And you never know when I'm going to. Do the live stream. Sometimes I will do eight or nine hours of show prep trying to prepare for the live stream, and next thing you know, it's three, four, five o'clock in the morning. Anyway, um, but, you know, the show must go on, so we do it when we do it. I've been up all night. Anyway, one of my friends here listening to the live stream says, send this podcast to Clueless Mike Pence. Well, you know, that's a great idea, and if I knew how to get it to him, I would. But, no, I appreciate that. I really do. That's a great idea. All right. Having said that, having said that, uh, the great Alex Washburn, he's got an E on the end of his name, so probably no connection, probably no uh Relation said when we FOIA the NIH to release communications discussing a lab leak and they give us this, which is they redacted everything. He's got the screenshot, totally redacted. An email from Anthony Fauci to Francis Collins, his boss, February 4th, 2020. He says, then it's 100% reasonable to ask what are they hiding? What was in between the intro and signature of this redacted email? This is an insult to all Americans. And Chris Shaver responds, 
They would not be doing this cover-up if the email contents pointed to the wet market. Talking about where the Wu flu came from, the China virus. NIH and NIH director have utter contempt for the public that provides their funding. They've done a great job of destroying trust in government. And then the great independent journalist Hans Monkey responded, the NIH burns through $62.5 billion with a B dollars each year. That is more money than the national budget in around 80% of the world's countries. Yet they won't even show their emails to the taxpayers who pay for all of this. You know, we need to elect somebody who would do something about that, don't we? But I don't know. I don't know if the... um, If the swing states have even fixed their electoral systems, because if they haven't, we'll never have another Republican president again. So it remains to be seen. Now, on a regular basis, I tell you that I will never forget about the January 6th, 2021 Capitol protest, political prisoners that most Republican politicians don't want to say a word about. I tell you this on a regular basis. But it's not just words. There is a great attorney, a fellow named Joseph McBride, who I've had on the program before, and he has an appeal now for one of his clients named Ryan Nichols. And I want you to hear what Attorney McBride is saying and I hope that you will be able to find it in your heart to help. My name is Joseph Daniel McBride. I am an attorney representing Ryan Taylor Nichols of Longview, Texas. Ryan is an honorably discharged Marine Corps veteran living with post-traumatic stress disorder. Ryan has been in federal custody at D.C. jail for the past 19 months, where he has been unconstitutionally, illegally, and egregiously tortured. The standard for a pretrial detainee in the United States of America is that no punishment of any kind is acceptable. Never mind the use of prolonged solitary confinement against somebody who's been merely accused of a crime. Solitary confinement is defined as 22 hours or more of isolation absent meaningful human contact. Prolonged solitary confinement is defined as solitary confinement for 15 days or more. Prolonged solitary confinement is banned under international law, specifically under the Nelson Mandela rules. Despite that reality, Ryan Taylor Nichols has been at various times held in prolonged solitary confinement for months at a time, hundreds of days at a time. And fairly recently, on April 20th of 2022, he was once again put into prolonged solitary confinement for unjustifiable reasons, for no reason actually whatsoever. He was held there to the point where he was driven to suicide watch. He was made fun of and actually encouraged to kill himself and to end his own life by the D.C. prison guard staff. 
This is not just punishment. This is the out-and-out torture of an American citizen because of who he is and what he believes in. There is a long and storied history in this country of political protest. A concept called civil disobedience, which is the intentional breaking of a law in order to effectuate a political message, a message of disagreement by the citizen to the government that we disagree with whatever course of action that you're taking. Think about Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement and all the other movements that have gone before him and after him. People are technically trespassing. People are technically breaking laws and entering buildings, but they're doing so for political purposes. Their actions are grounded in the First Amendment of the United States Constitution, and because of that, they are protected to the extent where they are not indicted on felony charges. They certainly aren't sentenced under felony charges. Standing against the United States government is a tall order. It is a David and Goliath situation for sure. This is the biggest investigation and prosecution in the storied history of the Department of Justice. And with that comes the biggest budget to ever prosecute any case. Why am I telling you this? I am telling you this because this has been an unfair fight since day one. But the fight isn't over. The legal fight is really just beginning. We need your help. And if you are so inclined to donate to Ryan Taylor Nichols' legal fund, you can find it very easily at the McBride Law website, McBrideLawNYC.com under the J6 tab. If you want to help us with this fight, if you want to stand for the United States Constitution, if you want to stand for free speech, the civil rights, and for protections for all, then I invite you to contribute in any way that you can so that we can hire more people, we can get the boots on the ground that we need, and that we can ultimately win this fight for Ryan, for his family, and for yours as well. God bless you, and thank you. All right, there you go. I, I do what I can. I try to get the word out because it's important. Constitutional rights of peaceful Americans are being violated. And there are just no two ways around it. Now, let me take you to this. Washington Free Beacon has a story. FBI official accused of shutting down Hunter Biden probe was running point on key witness. Have you heard about this? A former FBI official who allegedly shut down part of the investigation into Hunter Biden was running point in the Bureau's dealings with a key witness in the probe, according to sources directly familiar with the matter. The witness, Tony Bobolinsky, now has concerns that the former official, Timothy Tebow, not the football player, but T-H-I-B-A-U-L-T, helped bury information about his dealings with the Biden family that he gave the FBI. This is what sources are telling the Washington Free Beacon. Tebow retired from the FBI last week amid allegations from whistleblowers that he shut down an investigation into an avenue of derogatory information about Hunter Biden in October 2020. 
Senate Republicans began scrutinizing Tebow earlier this year over anti-Trump rhetoric he posted on social media. It had been unclear what role Tebow played in the Biden investigation, which began in 2018. But his oversight of Wawelinski means he oversaw one of the most significant witnesses to come forward with information about the Biden's business links to China. The FBI interviewed Bobolinsky for five hours, October 23, 2020, after Bobolinsky publicly disputed Joe Biden's claim to have never discussed business with his son. Yeah, he publicly disputed on the Tucker Carlson show on Fox News. Bobolinsky said... He met with Hunter and Joe Biden in May of 2017 to discuss a multimillion-dollar deal with CEFC China Energy, a Chinese energy conglomerate with ties to Chinese military intelligence. The California-based businessman also said Joe Biden is the big guy, referenced in cryptic emails discussing equity payments from their business deals. At a press conference before his FBI interview, Bobolinsky said, In my hour-long meeting with Joe Biden, we discussed Biden family business dealings with the Chinese, with which he was plainly familiar. Text messages show Bobolinsky and Hunter Biden arranging a meeting with Joe Biden at the Beverly Hills Hilton. Emails from Biden's abandoned laptop, that's Hunter's abandoned laptop, not Joe's, show extensive discussions about... CEFC China Energy. Hunter Biden announced in December 2020 that the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware was investigating his taxes, though other reports say prosecutors were scrutinizing Biden's business dealings in China and Ukraine. CNN reported last month that the probe has reached a critical juncture with prosecutors still weighing possible criminal charges. The New York Post reported earlier this year that a grand jury witness was asked to identify the big guy referenced in the emails sent to Biden and Bobolinsky. However, Bobolinsky has not been contacted by the U.S. attorney or called before the grand jury, according to the sources that are speaking to the Washington Free Beacon. According to these sources, Bobolinsky's attorneys had multiple interactions with Tebow after Bobolinsky's FBI interview. They said Tebow told Bobolinsky's lawyers the FBI would reach out if additional information was needed, but that the Bureau has not made contact with Bobolinsky since then. You know, this is, uh, this is starting to look really funky. Senators Chuck Grassley... Republican Iowa and Ron Johnson, Republican Wisconsin, raised concerns about Tebow earlier this year over social media posts in which the FBI official attacked Trump as a psychologically broken, embittered, and deeply unhappy man. According to Republicans, whistleblowers said Tebow ordered the closure of an investigation into derogatory reporting about Hunter Biden. The whistleblowers said Tebow improperly marked the information in the FBI's internal systems in a way that the matter could not be reopened in the future. 
FBI Director Chris Wray said at a Senate hearing this month that the allegations against Tebow, well, that was last month, were troubling. Tebow's attorneys denied in a statement to the Washington Free Beacon that he was fired or forced to resign from the FBI. They claimed Tebow did not supervise the Hunter Biden probe and did not seek to close the investigation, though they declined to address questions about the big witness, Tony Bobulinski. Congressman Daryl Issa, Republican of California, who serves on the House Judiciary Committee, said Congress must shine a bright light on the FBI in the wake of the Tebow allegations. Issa told the Washington Free Beacon what Mr. Tebow knows about the FBI's significant misconduct and running of interference for the Biden family won't stay hidden just because he's no longer with the Bureau. U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware and the FBI, of course, of course, declined comment. How about them apples? Man, oh, man. Okay, now, having said all that, our Treasury Secretary seems to be not the brightest bulb, not the sharpest person. Her name is Janet Yellen. Have you heard what she said recently? Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen about the energy future of this country? Well, let me share that with you. It's only less than 25 seconds long. Janet Yellen. Just brilliant. Our plan, powered by the Inflation Reduction Act, represents the largest investment in fighting climate change in our country's history. And it will put us well on our way toward a future where we depend on the wind, the sun, and other clean sources of energy. We will rid ourselves from our current dependence on fossil fuels. So Janet Yellen says, under Biden's plan, we will rid ourselves of oil and gas. Again, the great talk show host Jesse Kelly out of Houston, Texas, says, this is your Treasury Secretary openly discussing the largest genocide in human history by an order of magnitude. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I guess they want us to freeze and starve in our beds. I mean, Europe is in bad shape this winter. Let me just tell you. Europe is in bad shape this winter. Because Russia has made it clear, hey, we're not going to put up with this. You know? We're not going to put up with this. Oh, by the way, I, I'm trying to remember, did I mention that the felon charged in the murder of the kidnapped teacher in Memphis was released early from his previous abduction conviction? Did I mention that? The kidnapping suspect accused of abducting and now charged with murdering 34-year-old school teacher Eliza Fletcher, whose slain body was found by Memphis police Monday, has a previous abduction conviction 
and was released early from state prison in 2020, according to court records, reviewed by townhall.com. Town Hall's review of 38-year-old Cleotha Cleo. See, that's his nickname. They all have nicknames, all these criminals. Cleo Duane Abstin's extensive criminal history shows that he spent 20 years in a state penitentiary after he was convicted of kidnapping an attorney in a similar violent fashion back in 2000 when the suspect was age 16. Abstin kidnapped Memphis-based criminal defense lawyer Kemper Durand at gunpoint on the victim's way home from the office and demanded his car keys. Durand was then forced into the cold darkness of his vehicle's trunk for several hours while Abstin, alongside an accomplice, drove the victim's car throughout the city. The victim was pulled out of the trunk from time to time to repeatedly withdraw cash from several ATM machines and hand the money over to Abstin. Duran's assailants fled and were later captured when a nearby security guard aided his rescue at a Mapco gas station. Expressing gratitude that an armed, uniformed Memphis Housing Authority guard happened to be at the scene when he yelled for help, Durand wrote in a victim impact statement, I was extremely lucky that I was able to escape from the custody of Cleotha Abstin. It is quite likely that I would have been killed had I not escaped. The Memphis Commercial Appeal, daily newspaper in Memphis, reported that Durand was alarmed by the teenager's lengthy rap sheet even when he was 16 years old. Durand mentioned it took more than a year for Abstin to sign the guilty plea, characterizing the refusal as jailhouse braggadocio, being a tough guy and showing off to the other jail inmates. Recommending the maximum possible sentence, Durand wrote, this makes it obvious that he feels absolutely no remorse for the crime. Rather, he wants to show the other guys in jail how tough he is. Just to keep him out of society is what Durand wanted. Abstin's history in the juvenile court system dates back to as early as 1995 when he was 12 years old. Yeah, that's what Durand's statement cited. Abstin appeared in juvenile court records in 96, 97, 98, 99 for charges including theft, aggravated assault, aggravated assault with a weapon, and rape. Durand, who passed away in February 2013, approximately seven years before Abstin's release, had testified at the sentencing hearing for Abstin's co-defendant, Marquette Deshaun Cobbins, portraying the man as an unwilling accomplice and not the attacker who accosted him that fateful evening. An obituary page by Duran's colleagues at the Thomason, Hendricks, Harvey, Johnson, and Mitchell law firm said Cobbins was at the wrong place with the wrong person at the wrong time, recounting how Durand said that Cobbins had pleaded at the time with his friend, Abstin, to stop the car, let this man out, give him his keys, and go. Abstin was found guilty of aggravated robbery and especially aggravated kidnapping and Durand's abduction. The convicted felon was sentenced to 24 years behind bars for the kidnapping offense and 11 years incarceration for the robbery charge. 
But it appears, unfortunately, the sentences ran concurrently. 2003, and again in 2009, Abstin filed petitions for post-conviction relief, but his efforts were swatted down. Still, Abstin was released from state prison early in November 2020, according to the Felony Offender Information Lookup application by the Tennessee Department of Correction. According to Fox 13 Investigates, Abstin was eligible for early release after serving 85% of his 24-year prison sentence, so he would have served 20 years. Abstin's supervision status is labeled inactive, meaning he was no longer under state supervision. The state's Department of Correction Communications Director, Dorinda Carter, confirmed to townhall.com that Abstin's sentences were concurrent and that he was not under any supervision when he was released early, thanks to statutorily required program credits and pretrial jail credits that were applied. WMC Action News 5 TV reported Abstin received these credits for serving jail time before his sentence and for participating in the prison's job program where he worked in the kitchen, laundry, cleaner, and as a cook. Tennessee Lieutenant Governor Randy McNally tweeted Tuesday that he believes had Abstin served his full sentence, Eliza Fletcher would be alive today. Fletcher, the granddaughter of the late business magnate Joseph Orgill III, was last seen wearing a pink shirt and purple running shorts while she was jogging early Friday morning around 4.30 a.m. near the University of Memphis campus. The deceased heiress of the Tennessee headquartered worldwide hardware distributor Orgill Incorporated, which touts $3 billion in annual sales, was known by St. Mary's Episcopal School, a local private school for girls, as a beloved school teacher for junior kindergarten and the mother of two young sons she has left behind. The school emphasized that Liza embodied the song that St. Mary's students sing weekly in early childhood chapel, This Little Light of Mine, I'm Going to Let It Shine. During the COVID-19 pandemic, Fletcher made a sing-along YouTube video, now unlisted, of the popular gospel song by her students, or for her students, that is, learning remotely at home. Former FBI Special Agent Jennifer Kofendoffer told News Nation that Durand, Abstin's first kidnapping victim, was a former co-worker of Fletcher's uncle, Mike Keeney, who is to date of legal counsel at the Lewis Thomason Law Firm's Memphis office. Keeney joined the very law firm that mourned Durand's passing in the tribute post as an associate and later a managing partner. Keeney, a well-connected member of the Tennessee Sports Wagering Advisory Commission, as well as the Douglas Henry State Museum Commission, was at one point on the board of directors for Orgill Incorporated. He had married Fletcher's aunt, formerly Ann Orgill. Kofendoffer said, I think this is a very significant clue, and I'm sure certainly that the FBI, the U.S. Marshals, and the TBI, Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, is looking closely at this relationship. She stated on air that she believed the attack was not random. According to a two-page, I don't know if you've heard this anywhere before, but I, I just figured I should share it with you. 
According to a two-page affidavit obtained by Town Hall that was filed in support of Abstin's arrest over the weekend in connection to Fletcher's abduction, the court document reveals disturbing details about the case. A surveillance camera filmed a man aggressively running toward Fletcher in midtown Memphis before forcing her into the passenger side of a dark-colored GMC terrain. The affidavit reads, During the abduction, there appears to be a struggle. Investigators found a pair of champion slides at the abduction site in which DNA found from the footwear matched Abstin's profile from a prior sample logged in the combined DNA index system, a national DNA database created and maintained by the FBI. Other surveillance footage showed Abstin wearing the same sandals a day earlier and the suspect's cell phone data placed him near the intersection at which Fletcher was last spotted around the time of her disappearance. The black SUV was found by members of the U.S. Marshal Service, Two Rivers Violent Fugitive Task Force, in a parking lot near Abstin's residence. When officers stopped him, he attempted to flee but was taken into custody Saturday, according to the affidavit. He declined to provide investigators with the location of the victim. The affidavit said as the abduction was violent with, as captured on video, the suspect waiting for, then rushing toward the victim, then forcing the victim into the vehicle where she was confined and removed. It is believed and supported by the facts and the physical evidence that Fletcher suffered serious injury. The day Fletcher went missing, Abstin was observed cleaning the interior of his vehicle with floor cleaner and washing his clothes in the sink of his brother's house. The affidavit says it is probable and apparent from witness statements that these injuries left evidence, such as blood, in the vehicle that the defendant cleaned. Amid the days-long search for Fletcher, authorities have confirmed that the body found on Labor Day afternoon does belong to the teacher. That's what the Memphis Police Department announced in a tweet as well as a Facebook post Tuesday morning. Additional charges of first-degree murder and first-degree murder in perpetration of kidnapping have been added for Abstin, who is already facing counts of especially aggravated kidnapping and tampering with evidence. He's also been slapped with charges of identity theft after property, $1,000 or less, and fraudulent use of a debit or credit card of 1000 or less, per the Shelby County Sheriff's Office booking page. On the day before Fletcher's abduction, a woman told police that her cash app and Wisely card were being used at gas stations without her knowledge or consent, according to Fox 13 TV in Memphis. The woman said she left her wallet at a Malco Theaters location and investigators found that Abstin, a member of a cleaning service, had stolen it. According to jail records, Abstin is being held at the Shelby County Jail in $500,000 bond, which grew another 10000 overnight and has a court date scheduled. It's coming Wednesday morning following Tuesday's first court appearance. Abstin donning a face mask and a green jail-issued jumpsuit, was silent during the initial 15-minute hearing, according to WREG News Channel 3's courtroom live stream. 
A court-appointed attorney was assigned to Afton, who indicated to the judge that he is unable to afford bond or legal representation. Well, that's too bad for him. Afton, who goes by the monikers Wild Child and Pookie, which is slang for a pipe used to smoke drugs such as meth and crack, wrote about getting out of prison. I'm done. I'm done. This is too much. This is just too much. If he is found guilty, he needs to be executed. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the, um, the three-drug cocktail is, is too good for him. Too good for him. All right, now, I need to share with you Dr. Robert Malone warning parents about the vaccine. Dr. Robert Malone, and it goes something like this. Parents, before you inject your child, a decision that is irreversible, I wanted to let you know the scientific facts about this genetic vaccine, which is based on the mRNA vaccine technology I created. There are three key issues that parents need to understand. The first is that a viral gene will be injected into your children's cells. This gene forces your child's body to make toxic spike proteins. These proteins can cause permanent damage in children's critical organs, including their brain and nervous system, their heart and blood vessels, including blood clots, their reproductive system, and this vaccine can trigger fundamental changes to their immune system. The most alarming part about this is that these damages, once they occur, are irreparable. You can't fix lesions within their brains. You can't repair heart tissue scarring. You can't repair a genetically reset immune system. And this vaccine can cause reproductive damage that could affect future generations of your family. The second thing that you need to know about this is the fact that this novel technology has not been adequately tested. We typically need at least five years of testing and research before we can really understand the risks of new medicines or vaccines. Harms and risks from new medicines often become revealed many years later. So ask yourself, if you want your own child to be part of the most radical medical experiment in human history. One final point. The reason they're giving you to vaccinate your child is a lie. Your children represent no danger to their parents or grandparents. It's actually the opposite. Their immunity after getting COVID is critical to save your family, if not the world, from this disease. In summary, there is no benefit for your children or your family to be vaccinating your children against the small risks of this virus, given the known health risks of the vaccine that as a parent, you and your children may have to live with for the rest of their lives. The risk-benefit analysis for this vaccine isn't even close for children. As a parent and grandparent, my recommendation to you is to protect your children and do not give them this unproven vaccine. All right, like I said, I just have to share fair warning with you on certain things. 
And that right there could be life and death stuff. Dr. Robert Malone. Okay, you've been listening to episode 235 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier the Tenth. Well, that's the way it is. Friday, September 9th, 2022.